Well, maybe at times uh, you've been uh, in the unfortunate position as I have to be building IKEA furniture. Um, if you're wise, you look at the instructions first, right? But sometimes men especially have a tendency to just take everything out, try to put things together themselves. That may be a bit difficult. You may run across some problems. You may find pieces, and as you're looking at them, you're not sure where they fit. And if you're wise at this point, you go back to the instructions. You see how everything fits together, and then you can go about putting that piece in its proper place. Well, sometimes reading the Bible is a bit like that too. We love the Bible, but sometimes we come across parts and we're just not sure, where does this fit? Where does this fit in the whole story of the Bible? What does this have to do with Christ? What does this have to do with me as a believer in the 21st century? And really this section that we're in right now is probably one of those confusing parts for most of us. Uh, the passage in, in front of us brings up many questions, and it may appear to us even irrelevant. Why does the Bible contain all of these allotments given to the people of Israel? Why is there so much detail? Why so many chapters? Why so much space? given to this whole matter of the land. But as we really take it seriously, and we should take every part of the Bible seriously, because 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for us, even as Christians, for every man and woman of God. This is profitable stuff here. And so we'll want to ask questions of it. Go back to the rest of scripture that's the key, to really see how this fits in with what has gone before in Scripture and what comes after. We have to investigate the whole Bible, and then we'll see, like going back to that instruction manual, we see how this piece fits in with the whole thing. And so we're going to look at this text in light of the whole Bible this morning, and we'll find there are many reasons for the giving of this land and the detail of it. And those reasons will bring out even applications to us as well. So I have three main points this morning. Number one, the reason for giving the land. Second, the reasons for specific allotments. And then thirdly, the reason for detailed boundaries. So this will be an overview of chapters 13 to 21. But we will be looking at various scriptures outside the book of Joshua. And then we'll jump around within this section in Joshua. So as we go, um, just try to follow along with these scriptures. And again, I'll have some maps up on the screen behind me. So with the first point here, we have the first map up. And I'm going to talk about the reason for giving the land in general. Why did God give Israel this land to begin with? Generally, not getting into the specifics of allotments here, but what's the big purpose for giving this land to this nation made out of the tr tr 12 tribes of Israel who came from this guy named Jacob? Well, some of the things happening here only make sense if we understand previous passages in the Bible. We find that 
It only makes sense, especially if we understand Genesis and specifically what God promised to do with Abraham. So in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we really get the early history of the world. God created the world and everything in the space of six days. He created people in the image of God to live with him in this perfect world and to extend his reign and multiply in the earth. It was a blessed world, but they rebelled against God in Genesis 3. They rebelled and fell under the curse of death. And so all people in the whole earth from that point were affected by this sinful nature. Every thought of their hearts were only evil continually, as Genesis 6 says. They did not obey God, and so all died. And many died apart from the glory and blessing of God, the blessing of eternal life, except for those who had faith and preserved their souls. But turn with me now to Genesis 12, because this is really where the story of redemption and the story of the land really starts. We get Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, where God first gives him promises. God gave Abraham a covenant, and within this there were promises given to him. There are three main things God promised to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing. It says in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then you see in chapter 12, Abraham ends up in Canaan. He goes up and down through this land, and and God says in verse 7, he would give his offspring that land. But the big idea here is God is choosing Abraham to bless the whole world. All the families, all the tribes, all the people groups in the world will be blessed through Abraham. Then as you go on into Genesis 15, you see a few more things. This is where God ratifies his covenant with Abraham. And in Genesis 15, 6, it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith, just like we must be. We cannot stand before God as righteous by our own works, but only by faith in Christ. And we see, secondly, in Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16, God prophesied Israel's sojourn in Egypt and the exodus that was prophesied. It was prophesied here beforehand. Then he gives them the boundary of the land he would give to them. Verse 18 to 20. The land of Canaan, from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, would be given to them. And that's actually the boundaries you see here behind me. You see that the northern part of that territory would stretch even to the river Euphrates, and the southern would reach the Wadi El Arish, which is sometimes called the river of Egypt. And so this was the original land 
promised to Abraham. Now, these are the general boundaries we also see given to the Israelites in Joshua 13, 1 to 7. Though it wasn't actually until Solomon's reign that he had dominion over that whole area. This is actually a map of Solomon's reign. You see that in 1 Kings 4.21 and 4.24 that Solomon had dominion over that whole area God had promised originally to Abraham. But in Genesis 17 and 22, these promises of land and seed and blessing continue to be reiterated. And in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul gives us insight into how these promises are to be interpreted. He notes that this promise of blessing was really the gospel being preached to Abraham beforehand. In Galatians 3 verse 8, God was telling him that people from all nations would be justified by faith like he was, and they would receive the blessing of the Spirit through Abraham's singular offspring, who is Christ, who would bear the curse for us in our place. That's Galatians 3, 6 to 14. So as we, we look back to the land, actually the whole purpose here was to give Abraham a place for his seed to grow, his offspring to grow, and eventually lead to that singular offspring, Jesus Christ, who would bring blessing to all nations. And Canaan was actually the perfect place from which to do that. You can't necessarily see it on this map, but Canaan lies between two great empires throughout the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it's also an amazing launching point for the gospel to go to the whole earth. As we see Paul going out from Antioch to these other places, other disciples spread throughout the whole earth from that place to bring God's blessing to the nations. This being the plan of God all along, he fulfilled his promises, including the detail of that land. And so this is why this is a big emphasis for the book of Joshua. And if you turn now to Joshua and turn to chapter 21, verse 43 to 45, <clears throat> this is the summary of this section of the book of Joshua. So he's going to tell us the significance of, 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 of all of this. So that God was being faithful to the promises he gave to Abraham and the fathers. It says here, 2143, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now turning to chapter 23, 14, Joshua reiterates this to the people. He says, and now I am about to go the way of all the earth 
And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. This is our God, the faithful God. Not one word of all his promises fail. When God speaks, it will come to pass. His words are good and he will fulfill them. They're not fallible like ours. They do not fall to the ground. They do not fail. He's the God who never lies, for whom it is impossible to lie. And all his promises are ultimately yes in Christ. God is all-powerful and sovereign, able to bring all his will to pass. And this is the emphasis of the book of Joshua, God's faithfulness to his promises. There's a story about G. Campbell Morgan, who was minister at Westminster Chapel in London. He was visiting some elderly ladies for a Bible study, and they came across the passage in Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he said, Isn't that a wonderful promise? One of the ladies quickly replied, Young man, that is not a promise. It is a fact. Well, that's true. God's promises are facts, and this should give us strong encouragement to rely on this God. Not one of his promises will fail, so we can trust his promises to us as well, his promises in Christ. They're like a sturdy and durable bridge, and all the saints of all the ages have walked across on that bridge. We can jump up and down on it, we can walk over on it, it will never crumble. Even if the promises take long time, a long time to be fulfilled, as these promises even took thousands of years to be fulfilled, they will never fail. So this is the first point, the reason for the giving of the land itself. God was being faithful to his promise to Abraham, ultimately in order to bless the whole world with salvation. By this point, we're seeing how this piece already fits in with the whole Bible. This gives this section great significance. But then as we look further, we see there's really specific tribal allotments. And so we might ask if there are reasons for these as well. And what we see is there are many reasons for specific allotments. And this will bring us to map number two, Doug. This is the 12 tribes of Israel here in their allotments. So we see specific allotments in this chapter. Um, there are different sections here within this wider section. In chapter 13, 1 to 7, you have sort of the, the, the big boundary that the people were supposed to possess. Then in 13, 8 to 33, there's the inheritance that was already given to Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh in the Transjordan. That's the land beyond the Jordan, east of the Jordan. So you see them, those three tribes there, Reuben, Gad, East Manasseh on the right side there. In chapter 14 to 17, there is the inheritance of Judah, and Ephraim and Manasseh. These are the three biggest allotments 
in what they call the Cisjordan. So on this side of the Jordan, on the west side here. You see Judah in the bottom there, Ephraim and Manasseh above them. Manasseh actually has two territories, some in the Cisjordan, some in the Transjordan. Um, and then in 18 to 19, we have the allotments for the other seven tribes, which sort of divide up the rest of the land according to smaller allotments. And in chapter 20 to 21, the cities of refuge and Levitical cities are listed. In 14, 1 to 5, if, if you want to turn there just for one second, we see that there is an introduction there to the first round of allotments. Later in chapter 18, there'll be another introduction to the second round of allotments. But here it says that Joshua was together with the high priest, Eliezer, and the heads of the tribes, and they gave out these regions by lot. They casted lots. This was sort of a, a random process, seemingly random, but actually God was sovereign over it, bringing about certain allotments for various reasons. As Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so really we will see that there are lots of reasons that different tribes got different areas. The first reason, obviously, is just to give them property in an orderly fashion. Each tribe needed its own area so that they could pass down property throughout their generations. God is a God of order and peace, not confusion. He wasn't going to throw them into the land and let them spread all over and just mix together and take whatever space they saw fit. Just like with a person's inheritance today, I mean, you better have a, a will written out, right? Or else, unfortunately, sometimes families uh, really make a, a schmozzle over taking everything that you own. God gave everyone their rightful territory. And this would ensure that property boundaries were kept, that people had a place to, to give their children in succession, to move the boundary markers indeed was seen as theft, and it would incur the curse of God. Deuteronomy talks about this in chapter 19, 14, and 27, 17. And so God wanted to give them all a, a certain allotment, property, in an orderly fashion. The second reason is simply the desires of those tribes and suitableness of the land to them. In Numbers 32, 1 to 5, the people of Reuben and Gad desired the land beyond the Jordan because it was suitable for their large numbers of livestock. So Moses gave it to them as long as they promised to come over in the conquest and help the rest of the army conquer Canaan. But so you see, sometimes it's just the desire of the tribes. So Moses gave them their desires. It was suitable to them. God also gave a bit of a rule in Numbers 33, verse 54. It says there, To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. That sounds fair, doesn't it? So if you actually look at the numbers of the people in the tribes, 
which is recorded for us in Numbers 26, Judah and Joseph, or Ephraim and Manasseh together, were the biggest tribes. And so they received the biggest allotments. So all that was fair. It was according to the desire of the tribes and suitableness to them. A third reason is reward or punishment. Certain allotments were the result of reward or punishment. Half of the tribe of Manasseh won a piece of land in the Transjordan because some of the sons of Manasseh conquered the people there. You can read of that in Numbers 32, 39 to 42. Moses gave them that land because they went up and captured it. So it was like a reward to them. But some of the tribes received a meager inheritance and had less people as a punishment or consequence, like Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Back in Genesis, we learn a lot about the family of Jacob and the different sons of Jacob who became these 12 tribes of Israel. To say the least, their family was quite a mess. Jacob himself was not the most upright person. His name itself means something like cheater. And uh, he usurped his brother's birthright. He had children with four different women, two wives and two servants. That's not commendable. That's not according to creation order. But this is the family that God chose to use despite their brokenness. And in Genesis 49, which Ken read this morning, Jacob blesses each of his sons. And these blessings do relate somewhat to the apportioning of the land. And these blessings are also elaborated on by Moses in Deuteronomy 33. So there's a lot of background to these passages here. But these blessings stated specifically of Reuben, that he would not have preeminence and his men would be few because of his actions with Jacob's concubine. Genesis 49, 3-4, Deuteronomy 33, 6, and Genesis 35, 22 gives us the background there. Even though Reuben was actually the firstborn of Jacob, he was demoted and given only a small corner of the land. As you can see, he's in this bottom corner with a small little piece by the Dead Sea, not the best allotment even though he was the firstborn. Really, his blessing was given over to the sons of Joseph. Joseph received a double portion uh, given to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. We see also that the blessing on Simeon and Levi states that they would be divided and scattered in the land because of their cruel anger. Genesis 49, 7 talks about that and the background to this is when they damaged Jacob's reputation in Canaan because they killed all the men of Shechem Genesis 34 so Levi actually had no territory of his own but was given cities and pasture lands within other territories and there are more reasons for that because Levi was the priestly tribe we'll talk about that in a later message but part of that was a consequence for his actions. And Simeon also 
only had a region within the allotment of Judah. So you see there's that little piece there within Judah where Simeon had some territory. He doesn't really have his own place. He's scattered within Israel. And so the actions even of these tribes had consequences, good or bad, reward or punishment. A fourth reason here is the choice of Jacob and of God. Jacob had some choice in the matter. As we look back, Jacob's favorite son was Joseph, the firstborn of his favorite wife, Rachel. And at least partly for this reason, Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were treated as two of the 12 tribes. In Genesis 48, Jacob blessed them and said they would become great peoples, Ephraim being the foremost. They would receive Shechem and hill regions and also the fruitful and beautiful region of Bashan. They would be a mighty and numerous people. We see also there that God's sovereign choice factored into that as well. When Jacob gave the blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh, he crossed his hands and gave Ephraim, who was the secondborn, the preeminence. At first, Joseph was upset with this, but this was in God's providence, God's sovereignty. It harkens back to how even Jacob was chosen and loved over Esau, and even back to Isaac and Ishmael. Sometimes these blessings were not necessarily deserved by right, but in God's sovereign will and even using the favoritism of Jacob, he set the stage for these tribes. But fifthly, and most importantly here, the reason for these things is to set the stage for Christ. God ultimately ordered all these allotments so that Christ would come into the world. One of the biggest allotments, and certainly the one which receives the most attention in the Old Testament, is Judah. He comes first in the first round of allotments, even in the order in the book of Joshua. He's given this preeminence, even though actually Judah was the last son of the least favored wife of Jacob. So there's nothing really in and of himself to factor into that. But God had made a promise and he had prophesied through Jacob that this would be the royal tribe from which an anointed king would come. You look at Genesis 49.10 for a moment in that blessing of Jacob again. It says of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Even way back in Genesis 17, God had told Abraham that kings would come from him. And here we see another kingly promise, that it would be in the line of Judah that kings would come. And we see later, who is it but David, who arises from that tribe, and he is a special king, anointed by God himself, who rules over Israel and Judah, unites the tribes. But even to him is given a further promise that one of his offspring 
would have the kingdom forever. This is found in 2 Samuel 7. We know the true son of David is our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 1, 32 to 33, Gabriel, the angel, told Mary about her son. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the everlasting king, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so God preserved that particular territory of Judah, even after all the other territories were taken over and conquered. And then finally, those people were brought into exile, but God preserved a remnant. And from that remnant came our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the flesh. Now, our Queen Elizabeth sadly passed away this last week. She was the longest reigning monarch in Britain, 70 years. But our Lord Jesus Christ, he reigns forever as God's anointed son. Now, I'm sure we could come up with plenty other reasons for these allotments. We probably just scratched the surface. But what we see there, there was rhyme and reason to the way these things were arranged. God was sovereignly working in his choice and kindness and grace, even through all the desires of people, their victories, their sins, their choices, ultimately to bring about his redemptive purpose in Christ. Thomas Watson says, God is not like a designer who builds a house and then leaves it, but like a pilot, he steers the ship of the whole creation. We see that God arranged all of history, all of geography, all these individual lives of people in all these 12 tribes, ultimately to bring about the coming of Christ and ultimately so that we would find Christ as well. We all also have a lot in life. God has allotted to us a time and a boundary in this earth. Acts 17, 26 to 27 puts it this way. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. See, maybe you think about your life. Maybe you've been a lot of places. Maybe you've done a lot of things. Maybe you've stayed in the same place pretty much all your life. Some of you are from different provinces, some from different countries. Your life has taken different turns for all kinds of reasons, good and bad. But God has so arranged your life at one point or another that you would hear the gospel, that you would come to Christ. And then he's led you to be a blessing to others if you're a Christian. If you're not saved, God has brought you even to this place under the earshot of the gospel so that you might feel your way toward him, turn to him and seek him, find his grace in Christ. Our God is involved 
with the very specifics of our lives and uses every aspect for his redemptive and gracious purposes. This is a comforting truth that we see even in these allotments. God has you at a specific place in a specific time for a reason. So can we not trust this God? Can we not trust he has a purpose and be content with our lots in life, whatever that is, with the good and the bad, with the winding path that we have taken through life? God is ultimately sovereign over all of it. So we've seen here many reasons for specific allotments. But now going further, even into the weeds here, into the details, why are all the different cities and boundaries even mentioned with such detail? If you do take the time to even read through this whole section in one go, and I I would encourage you to do it, you see how much detail there is, how these boundaries twist and turn and take corners around this city and that and lead to this place and all these cities are mentioned within these boundaries. There's so much detail and that might really trip us up when we're reading, but there is reason even for that. Now this will take us to our third map, Doug. Thank you. And this is a map of the, the conquest that was finished by the time of these chapters, okay? And to understand the reason for the detailed boundaries, we have to understand this first, that the conquest was not actually complete in a sense. You say, what? I thought they did finish the conquest. I thought the land had rest from war. I thought God was faithful to fulfill all his promises. Well, yes, absolutely. Totally, God was faithful to give them that land, to give it rest, to bring them in. But really we see in the book of Joshua that the people at this time really had what you could call a foothold. It was a substantial foothold that gave them control over the whole land. But you can see that there are parts of that territory where they don't have control. The green is where they were already, uh, they had already conquered all those cities and and peoples. But at the very outset of this section, I'll have you look, actually, and we'll read some of this. Um, Joshua 13, 1 to 7, God tells Joshua about the land that remained for them to possess. He says this, Or it says this, now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. He just has to rub that in, I guess. (laughs) You have to mention it twice. And there remains yet very much land to possess. That's what God himself said to them at this time. There remained yet very much land to possess. And this is the land that yet remains. And he goes on to describe really the boundary that we saw in map one, that whole boundary from the the river of Egypt, the Wadi El Arish up near the river Euphrates. God wanted them to possess that whole territory, but it, it wasn't quite theirs yet. 
There was still land to be taken. There were still cities to be conquered. Now, if you turn with me also to chapter 18, where the second round of allotments begins, I'll just read verses 1 to 3. It says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. I mean, that's, that's a point we have to consider, right? They had taken conquest. It was subdued before them. It, it was laid open before them. They had the opportunity to take it. But, verse 2 says, There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. How long will you put it off? He says, look, there's still land to be taken. And so they do allot the rest of those portions to the remaining seven tribes. But this is really the call of the book of Joshua as a whole to the generation that would have received it at first. Joshua 23 verse 5, I want you to look there for a moment. This is in Joshua's later speech to the people. Joshua 23, 5 says, The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. But he goes on there to tell them they need to be faithful to the Lord. They need to keep his word, keep his covenant, and then God would be with them. And he would help them drive out the inhabitants of that land. But if they did disobey God, then it says in verse 13, they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And so there's an interplay here in the book of Joshua between God's gift he had already given Israel this whole land, he, he laid it bare before them. They were, they were able to subdue it by his power if they would be faithful. He gave them already a foothold in Joshua 1 to 12. But it was also their responsibility to take that gift. And after all these tribes were allotted their different territories, they were to push out into those furthest boundaries where there were still cities where the Canaanites were dwelling, and they were to continue that conquest to the end. And this would require courageous faith. So this whole book of Joshua really was given to Israel initially to remind them of the gracious possession God gave them, to remind them of his mighty power in that initial conquest, that they could lay a hold of as well, and to remind them that they were still called to be faithful and to possess the rest of the land. So even these detailed boundaries, do you see how they factor in now? That gave them an idea of the whole territory they were still to take, up to that city, up to that coastline. They were to push into those furthest boundaries. 
in accord with this purpose as well, to encourage them to possess the rest of the land. There are positive and negative examples strewn throughout these chapters. It's interesting. It's, it's not just bare details of the land allotments. There are stories strewn throughout this section. There are stories of people who had faith and conquered territory. And there are stories of people who lacked faith and did not. And these were meant to be an encouragement and a warning for the future generations. There are some encouragements. Turn with me to chapter 14, 6 to 15. Caleb is really the greatest story of encouragement we have in this section. Chapter 14, 6 to 15. I'm just going to read this section in whole. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. This all happens in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Caleb was one of those original spies that went into the land and actually brought a good report. Him and Joshua were ready to go into the land. They trusted the Lord. They followed him with their whole heart, but the rest of the people did not. Verse 9, And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years, since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today As I was in the day that Moses sent me, my strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him. And he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. There's a lot of things we could say about Caleb. It's interesting that he was from Kenizzite, lineage. He was actually an ancestor, uh, a child of Canaanites, people who dwelled in that land. But, but he was a faithful Israelite at this point. And so he wholly followed the Lord. Even at 85 years old, he says his strength was just like it was 40 years prior. You want some kind of anti-aging program I mean, get what Caleb had. <laughs> he had uh, 
I guess he had faith. That's what energizes us even into old age, isn't it? But he had strength. And he points out this particular place in the hill country, Hebron, where there were these strong Anakim, who the people initially, when they spied out the land, were terrified of. But Caleb says, I want to go right there where the most terrifying enemies are. Give me that place. You see how courageous Caleb was in his faith. And God blessed him and he gave that city to Caleb. So this is the kind of encouragement that the book of Joshua wanted to give to that generation. And to us as well. To have great faith in God. Courageous faith. To even look somewhere and say, I want to take that territory. I'm going to go in for the mission of Christ. I'm going to take this place. I'm going to bring the gospel here. That's the kind of faith that we need. There's some other examples also in this section. Othniel in chapter 15, 16 to 19. He is Caleb's nephew, it appears. And he captures this very difficult city and wins the reward of Caleb's daughter. I'm not saying that's how uh, you ought to give your daughters in marriage. Some of these things are descriptive, not prescriptive. But anyway, Othniel's faith is certainly prescriptive for us. The daughters of Zelophehad in 17, 3 to 6. These are mentioned also beforehand in Deuteronomy. They needed an inheritance because there was no son among them. Usually the inheritance was given to the sons. But nevertheless, uh, Moses and God convened. They made an exception for these daughters of Zelophehad. And when they got into the land, they knew what God had promised them. And they asked for it and they received it. The daughters of Zelophehad are also an example of faith to us. Joshua, finally, in chapter 19, 49 to 50. And it's interesting that uh, Caleb and Joshua, their stories kind of bracket the whole section of the giving of the allotments. I think that's on purpose to remind us of these great men of faith on either side of this section. Joshua is spoken of in Joshua 19, 49, when they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances. The people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Sarah in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. Again, Joshua gained a city as a reward for his faithfulness and his faith. And he pointed out a city. He asked for a city. And he gained it, he re rebuilt it, and settled in it. All these people were encouragements to follow the Lord fully, wholeheartedly, believe in his promises, and take the land before them and possess it. But there were also warnings strewn throughout this section. Many tribes still left some Canaanites dwelling among them freely or as slaves. I'll take you to these references. Chapter 13, verse 13. 
Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites, but Geshur and Machah dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. These were Canaanites in the Transjordan. Chapter 15, 63 <clears throat> says, But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah did not, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. We know later David actually conquered um, Jebus or Jerusalem. And it became the capital city of Israel as a whole and, and the tribe of Judah. But at that time they did not drive the Jebusites out. Chapter 16 verse 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. That was one city in the tribe of Ephraim that they had not taken. Then chapter 17, verse 13. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not utterly drive them out. This is in the really Manasseh's territory, and we'll look back at this in a moment. But there's another instance. Chapter 19, verse 47. We see with the tribe of Dan, it says, when the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, the people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem, and after capturing it, and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Leshem Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor. The territory of their people was lost to them. And actually, Dan was probably the worst example in terms of the tribes of Israel. You learn in Judges 1 verse 34 that there were Amorites who lived in most of their territory. They had this little stretch of land. I don't know if we, we could actually move back to the previous map to see this. But you see Dan in kind of the middle there on the left side. Dan had Ijalon, which was in the hill country. But it says Amorites dwelt down below the hill country and they didn't allow them to come in. So really Dan inherited none of his territory at that point. They didn't go down and conquer those Amorites. And in Judges 18, it says that the Danites didn't have an allotment, and so they were wandering around looking for territory. Finally, they destroyed this city called Laish, or Leshem, as it's called here in Joshua 19.47. So in other words, they, they basically inherited none of their territory, and so they, they obviously lacked faith to believe that God could give them the power to drive out the Amorites. They're a terrible example here. Ephraim and Manasseh also showed a lack of faith. If you back up again to chapter 17. <clears throat> verses 12 to 18. I'll read this. This is speaking of the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh together. Manasseh as we might see on the third map, um, there's a bunch of territory in the north there where there's this split there 
between the, the most northern green part there, the Jezreel Valley, and there's all these cities that are not conquered, and then down the coast, there were uh, Canaanites there with chariots of iron. It says here, verse 12, Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance? Although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me. Now if you notice, actually, <laughs> they don't have just one lot. Ephraim had a lot. Manasseh had a lot. Manasseh had actually two sections in the land. But they were complaining. They, they thought they couldn't drive out these people. Verse 15 says, And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Sheen and its villages, and those in the valley of Jezreel. So they, they evidently didn't think they could go in and conquer these people. They, they lacked faith in God. Then verse 17 says, Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. So we see that Joshua knew God would enable them to drive out the Canaanites if they only trusted him. Iron chariots are no match for the arm of the Lord. Look, this is the God who parted the river Jordan and who stopped the sun in the sky, who brought hailstones down to defeat the enemies of Israel, who conquered the walls of Jericho. You can go in, you can take the Canaanites, even though they're strong, even though they have chariots of iron. But we see that through laziness, lack of faith, fear, worldliness, the people of this period did not possess the whole land. This, unfortunately, is the story of Israel. Even though God had given them the land and would have blessed them in it forever, had they been faithful, they were not faithful. And eventually, the territory of Israel was divided and conquered. Solomon reigned over that, that whole part for a little while. But then by his sin, he destroyed the kingdom. And it was divided and eventually conquered by Assyria and Babylon. And the people were cursed for their disobedience, exiled out of this blessed land, just like Adam and Eve out of the Garden, garden of Eden. And this is our problem as well, isn't it? We would inherit eternal life if we could be perfectly obedient to God. But we have all sinned and fall short of that glory. We fall short of the blessing of God. 
We fall under God's curse of judgment. But we see that even then, God was working redemption through Israel. Even after all that disobedience, God brought his own son into the world through this people and brought eternal life and immortality to light through the gospel. Out of that tiny remnant of Judah came the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the perfect covenant partner, who obeyed God faithfully in his life and his death, and he paid the penalty for us on the cross to forgive us and give us the blessing of eternal life by grace through faith. And he is the one we must trust in if we also want that blessing of eternal life. But as Christians as well, we must apply this passage to us seriously. God has given us this blessing of eternal life by his own grace. We've been justified, we've received the spirit, we've become children of God and co-heirs with Christ. Christ is heir of the whole world, but he's given us all of this in order that we also might go into the world to bring Christ to it. God ordered all of history and geography to bring Christ into the world. And then he ordered our lives to bring us to Christ. But now he wants to use us to bring Christ to others and to go forward in the Christian life and conquer sin and live as his servants to bring his blessing as far as the curse is found. And so we also are called from this section here to not be fearful, to not be lazy with the task that we've been given, but rather to be faithful, to live out the Christian life and mission. Just as the Israelites were called to stop being lazy, lay down their fears, trust in God's power, and go in to possess the land, so we also are to live out the Christian life and mission courageously trusting in God's power to work through us. If we are honest, many of us are lazy. Many of us are afraid, aren't we? Many of us are faithless in light of the tasks before us. This is why the message of Joshua is so important for us today. Joshua exhorts us. He rebukes our slothful ease, our laziness. He says, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? But then he also encourages us with the power and presence and promise of God. He says, you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. So friends, we need to stop putting off our growth and sanctification. We need to stop putting off the Great Commission. We need to understand that any laziness and any fear in this mission is completely unwarranted. God calls us to this work. He calls us to this. We are to be faithful to this. And even as we work, he's the one working in us to give us desire and ability 
to do according to his good pleasure. Philippians 2.14. He calls us to go. He gives us this great commission. But even there he says he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. That's not just a promise. It's a fact. So we must take encouragement from the likes of Joshua and Caleb and Othniel and the daughters of Zelophehad, those who inherited the promises by faith. We are simply called to put our whole heart into this, like Caleb, to follow him fully. We must be strong and courageous, meditating on God's word day and night, being careful to do it, knowing he is with us always. He will never leave us or forsake us. The land lays subdued before us. Let us enter it by God's grace. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the encouragement we can draw even from scriptures like this that seem confusing at first, Lord. We pray that you would work in us, God, that you would be with us, Lord, that you would be faithful to your promises as we are faithful to your commands. God, give us strength, give us encouragement, help us not to be afraid, help us to be diligent in this work that you've given us to do. And we pray that in the end, Christ would be glorified as your plan ends in him. We pray in his name.